Well, I, I also want to thank uh, Deacon Juan for uh, just his congregational prayer, uh, just really leading us into reflection, into uh, prayer, to cry out to God regarding uh, the fires, uh, regarding the, uh, the tragic shooting and the massacre in Thousand Oaks. I hope that we would continue uh, to pray, continue to give, to continue to be present uh, as brothers and sisters and members of our community. Uh, I know that it gets harder and harder as it just feels like it's on repeat. It seems like every year there's a fire that devastates Southern California and Northern California. And, you know, in the beginning, we, we, we really feel it. Our hearts are burdened and broken. And then it happens two, three, four, five years in a row, and we get numb and we get callous. Uh, the same thing happens with, with local shootings, national shootings. Uh, I mean, just last week, we had the Pittsburgh shooting uh, that afflicted our country as well. And uh, for so many of us, it's already out of our headspace. It feels so distant. It's just, it's just a, a short news flash. And I hope that uh, we would do all that we can uh, to not become callous to the pains and the hurts of people around us and people in need. And so um, I really do believe uh, that that's what God wants from his children, uh, that we would love one another uh, as we love him. Um, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week, we went through Mark chapter 10, which described Jesus leading his disciples towards Jerusalem. And in his conversation with his disciples, he predicted for the third time in the Gospel of Mark his own betrayal, his own preeminent uh, uh, death, and his resurrection. Uh, we were also reminded of Jesus' understanding of his own mission. And so after he talks about his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection, he reminds the disciples of why he came in the first place, that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the time is approaching for that ransom to be paid. And in our passage today, we are here in Mark chapter 11, and Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. Imagine if that was you. Imagine if that was us, going into a city, going into a place, knowing that we have seven days left to live. What would your disposition be? Where would your heart and attitude be? This is the final week of Jesus' life. For the Jews, it was known as Passover week. For us as followers of Jesus, we would know it and we would call it Passion Week. Mark's gospel is known as, as a gospel of action, where descriptions are brief. Mark has the shortest of the four gospels. His descriptions are the briefest, and things happen immediately. But here, from Mark chapter 11 to Mark chapter 16, everything slows down to focus on the most important week, of Jesus's earthly ministry. He takes six chapters to describe the final seven days of Jesus's life. And this shows us that the gospels are not just stories about Jesus's life, okay? The gospels are not just stories about Jesus's miracles and the contents of his teaching. The gospels are the stories and the significance of Jesus's death. Theologians call the gospel passion narratives with long introductions. You guys get that? So the Gospel of Mark is actually a passion narrative about the death, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus with a 10-chapter introduction, all leading into this. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to our passage with me? Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. 
I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. The word of the Lord. The title of today's message is The Triumphant Entry. And we're going to see three things as we work our way through this text. First, we're going to see the character of the king, and that's Jesus, the character of the king. The second thing we're going to see are the cries of the crowd. And lastly, we're going to see the hope of the church, right? So the character of the king, the cries of the crowd, and the hope of the church. Now, in ancient culture, when a king would arrive at a city, it was common for there to be a lot of pomp and circumstance. There would be a grand procession where crowds would gather with excitement and with celebration. There would be music and there would be singing. There would be a great festival at the arrival of the king. Kings would be accompanied by their great army, surrounded by their servants and officials. The king would come riding in on a glorious war horse or a beautiful chariot. Uh, Even uh, for the Muslims, when Muhammad took the city of Mecca, He entered that city with 10,000 soldiers, and he himself was riding on a great war horse. But in our passage today, we see something very different. Jesus, the true king of Israel, he comes not riding in a chariot or a war horse, but he comes riding on a colt, a baby horse. Other translations render this colt as a donkey, as a donkey, because donkeys were more common in Jerusalem than, than horses. It's actually safe to say that Jesus came riding in on a donkey, and that's why some of the other gospel stories uh, describe uh, this animal, this steed, as a donkey. Mark tells us that Jesus enters in through uh, a little town called Bethany, and, a sight, and excitement must have been running high regarding Jesus' arrival. Bethany is a town that Jesus has been there before, had been before. Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. No one had ever seen that before. And by the authority of Jesus' word, he says, Lazarus, rise. And a man who had been dead for days had risen and just shocked his family, shocked his friends, shocked the town. And surely the name and fame of Jesus had spread throughout Bethany to be a miraculous healer. Also previously to this passage, Jesus had met a man, a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus had approached Jesus and he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did. Jesus healed Bartimaeus and he gave him sight. 
And so Jesus' fame has been spreading all throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Galilee. And this helps explain why these crowds would gather, why people would await the coming of Jesus into their town, into their city. And this also helps explain why someone would allow two of Jesus' disciples, two complete strangers, to take a colt and just say, the Lord needs it, we will bring it back. I mean, if someone was like, I need your car, you know, the president needs it, or the governor needs it, or the sheriff needs it, and you're like, no, right? Come back with a warrant, or come back with official documents, or, you know, I pay enough taxes, get your own car, right? We would say no. We would absolutely say no to that. And yet, yet we see in this amazing story, right, two disciples, they, they find a random colt, and they say, the Lord needs it. And they say, okay. They let them take the colt. Now, normally when Jesus travels, He's very low-key, right? He's very inconspicuous. Many times people don't know where he's going or even how he got there. They're like, Jesus, how did you come here? How did you get here? But Jesus knows the significance of this moment, and he chooses to send a message to Israel that their king has come. But rather than ride a majestic horse, Jesus comes riding on a donkey. It seems odd. It seems beneath him. Kings don't ride baby horses. Kings don't ride donkeys, children do, right? Or people who can't afford horses, they will then ride a donkey. You know who else rides a donkey? Shrek, right? Shrek, I don't know how it worked out, but Shrek's riding a donkey, right? Uh, I actually remember the first time I had the opportunity to ride a horse. Um, I was uh, in junior high in sixth grade, and uh, my parents had sent me to a camp. And so I went with some friends, and we we're all excited. And, and the day came where we went to a ranch, and we saw all the horses. And just like little boys, we, we saw the beautiful horses, and we started calling out which one we were going to ride, right? They had spotted horses, brown, white, and black ones. They had stallions and all. And they were majestic, like muscles gleaming everywhere. And, and, and I was um, in sixth grade, uh, prepubescent, right? And so I think I was not even five feet tall. I was probably like 83 pounds, right? Uh, 4'11", I was like, no, I'm going to ride the big the big brown horse, right? And I'd peg them and, you know, the kids don't get to choose their own horses. The, the counselors do. And so when it was time for me to get on a horse, they gave me the smallest horse in the entire stable, right? And all my friends were laughing. They, oh, you got the runt, right? I, it was either a pony or like a colt, right? Or it was this old like grandpa horse. I, like I couldn't tell. But I was so embarrassed, right? My friends were shaming me. You little guy, you're riding the runt of the horses. Now, it was appropriate, right? Appropriate for for me, four foot 11, 83 pounds to ride such an animal. But it seems so inappropriate for Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to ride such a lowly animal. But why? Why does he select the colt? Why does he select this donkey? And it was actually to fulfill an important prophecy in the Old Testament regarding the true king of Israel. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's going to go up on the screen. And this is what the prophet Zechariah says to Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Brothers and sisters, this is the character of Christ. It's not about choosing the most powerful animals. Not about coming in and making an entrance, right? And and, and, and impressing the eyes of men. 
the character of Christ is such that he is mighty and meek. He is powerful and humble. He is the true king of Israel, bringing righteousness and salvation to his people. But he is a humble king, not riding on the back of a chariot or atop a great war horse. He's on the back of a donkey. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, refuses to fit into the categories of, of the, worldly, like the world's definitions of greatness and power. He just won't fit. He won't follow after someone like Muhammad. He won't follow and pattern himself after someone like Caesar or King Herod. Or later we would see men like Napoleon come with great pomp and circumstance, wanting to make much of themselves and their accomplishments. Jesus doesn't fit into those categories. And today, as we consider Christ, we must ask, do you know this king? Do you know this Jesus who is mighty and meek, righteous and humble? And will you follow this king who may not fit into your categories, who may not live up to your expectations of what you want your Savior to do for you, for your family, for your business, for your community, for your needs, would you consider Jesus who does offer freedom, who does offer salvation and liberation, but not by the power of the sword, but by the power of his sacrifice on the cross. That is the power of Jesus. It's not by a sword. It's not by wealth, but it's by death, by love. It's in his love. It's through his sacrifice through his work on the cross, that he gives us true freedom and true liberation. Will you worship and bow down before this kind of king, a humble king, mighty and meek? This is the character of Christ. And just as many of us have misunderstood him, we see that the crowd does as well. Mark tells us the response of the crowd as they see Jesus riding on the back of a donkey. And here as they see Jesus and they're expecting King Jesus, their Messiah, their liberator, they take off their cloaks and they spread them before his feet so that, that the donkey would go over their cloaks. They go and find palm branches and they cut them and they lay them down before Jesus, creating a pathway for him. They're waving them in the air. This may seem foreign to us, but all of this imagery points back to the Old Testament. You see, this scene reminds us of the coordination, coordination of some of the past kings of Israel. When Solomon was crowned king in 1 Kings 1, something similar to this happened. When Jehu was declared king in 2 Kings 9, all the men, all of his soldiers, all the men in the courts, they took off their garments and they lay them at his feet so he would walk over them. The palm branches, they represent Israel's desire to be freed. Israel's desire to be liberated and delivered. You see, the palm branch was this symbol that actually is not Old Testament, but 150 years before Jesus, there were these revolts by the Jews called the Maccabean revolts. And the Jews were under Greek imperialism. Okay? The Greeks had taken power all throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Israel, and the Jews, they rose up in revolt. And these are called the Maccabean revolts. And, and upon victory, they were waving palm branches, nationalistic palm branches, palm branches of power and victory. And so as they saw Jesus, they said, this will be, Jesus will be our liberator. Just as we were liberated from the Greeks, we will now be liberated from the Romans. 
And the crowds cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Why David? Because David was the greatest king of Israel, right? David was the great liberator. He was the great victor over the Philistines. And so whenever Israel was hoping for a great king, a great liberator, a great victory, they cried out, remembering the throne of David. And they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, what does Hosanna mean? I confess, a lot of times I sing that song, right? Hosanna, not even thinking about the meaning of it. It's one of those phrases we sing, we don't understand. God forgives us and has mercy on our ignorance. We know that like, it's kind of like a praise to God. It has a spirit of just lifting up God. But it actually means, right, in the Hebrew, save us. Save us, we pray. Hear our prayers, O God. Deliver us. It's a cry out for God to deliver his people. It's not just, God, we love you. God, we thank you. God, we acknowledge you. It's a cry. It's a petition. God, save us. And it comes from Psalm 18. Why would they cry out to Jesus in this manner? Why wouldn't they say, Jesus, you're awesome. You're a great healer. Why would they cry out, Jesus, save us? Because they were under captivity. They were under Roman authority and Roman power, and they were longing for a deliverer. You see, they were right to cry out for Jesus to save. They were right to lay down their cloaks and their palm branches and treat Jesus as a king, but they didn't realize what kind of king Jesus was. They didn't understand the mission and message of Jesus. They were looking for a liberator. They were looking for a king to restore their power, their glory, their freedom, someone to defeat the Goliath of their day, someone who would reign like David. They wanted Jesus to wear the crown, but they didn't realize that he had to first bear the cross. Okay? They wanted Jesus to wear the crown, but first Jesus had to bear the cross. Jesus will save. He will answer the cries of his people. He's not ignoring them. He's not ignoring them as they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus has a different category of salvation. And it's not just earthly, material salvation. He came to secure a salvation from sin and death. He came to secure for all of us salvation unto eternal life. What we truly need. Okay? It's not what Israel wanted in the moment. But it's what Israel truly needed in light of eternity. Here's the question you and I must answer. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? For Jesus as your king to lay down his life for you. To die on the cross in your place. To secure for you the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And we have to ask, is that enough? The sad reality for many of us is that it's not. It's not. And you need to tell that to Jesus. You need to work that out with Jesus. You need to look to him and say, Jesus, what you have offered on the cross, it's not enough for me. And if that's your heart, we should repent. We should repent for being so short-sighted, for only thinking of the 20, 30, 50, 70 years on this earth. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures call our time on earth a vapor. We are a mist. And what God cares for is not merely our time on earth, but he wants to secure for you and I 
for all nations and all people, eternal life, eternal joy, eternal flourishing. In light of the, um, the, the massacre uh, in Thousand Oaks, uh, I'm sure you guys saw or read of it. There was a woman who uh, lost her son, who lost her son who had survived the Las Vegas massacre. And he was in the bar and he fell victim uh, to the shooters. He was one of the 12. And as the news reporters asked her, what she was thinking and how she was processing her grief. And she cried out. She says, I don't want your prayers. I don't want your thoughts. I want gun control. Dear God, don't give me and don't send me any more of your prayers. And to be honest, that, that sentiment haunted me this week. I, I didn't judge her at all. I'm not condemning her at all. It broke my heart because so often you and I, we have felt and struggled with the vanity of our prayers. We feel like our prayers are powerless. We feel like our prayers do nothing. And so at some point out of cynicism and bitterness and callousness, we just say, what is the point? I prayed after San Bernardino. I prayed after Pittsburgh. I prayed after Florida. I'm praying for Thousand Oaks and it doesn't seem like anything is changing. What is the point? My heart broke for her. My heart broke for many Christians who in this moment, we might be doubting the concern and the care and the presence of God. We might be doubting the meaning and the fruitfulness of prayer. But in those moments, I believe Jesus is asking us, do we see, do we see his ultimate eternal purpose? Is what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection, is it enough? Is it greater? Is it sufficient? You see, I want to continue to talk about our own struggles with cynicism. And I think we read this passage with cynicism as well. We read the triumphal entry, and we're like, yeah, that seems nice. But we still judge the Jews, don't we? Those who are waving the branches and crying out Hosanna and putting their cloaks down, we're like, yes, but that seems like fake and hollow worship. Yes, you're acknowledging the kingship of Jesus, but he's literally like king for a day, right? He's king for a day because we know that in just a couple of days, Jesus will be betrayed by his own disciples. He will be tried unjustly. He will be beaten and crucified and he will die in just a few days. And so we, we think that, that this Palm Sunday celebration, it seems pointless and it seems hollow. I even struggled with preaching this text. I was like, what is the point of Palm Sunday when we know Good Friday is coming? What is the point of celebrating the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem when we know that he's only gonna be crucified in that city? Brothers and sisters, here's the truth for us today. The triumphal entry, it points to the greater triumph of Christ our King. And just as Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem to save his people and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus promises to return again in full glory. Jesus promises disciples who he knows 
They will experience persecution. He's looking at his disciples and he knows that many of them will die as martyrs for the faith. And he promises them, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. When we look at the, the, the triumphal entry, when we look at Palm Sunday, we need to remember that the king who has come will come again. When we read this passage, we need to remember that the king who has come God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He will come again. He is not done. And we see this in the promise of Revelation 19. It's a beautiful passage. John the apostle gets this vision of the return of Christ. And this is what he writes in Revelation for us. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, brothers and sisters, the first time Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on a lowly donkey, unbecoming of a king. But the next time he returns, the next time he returns to this earth, the next time he returns to the city of God, Zion, he will be riding on a majestic white horse as one who is faithful and true. He will come with the armies of heaven to strike down the nations in the full wrath and fury of God, and he will right every wrong, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you hear that? Do you see that? Will you receive his promise? You see, Jesus is not deaf, and he is not dull to the wickedness of this world. He is not indifferent to the massacres that take place in our communities and all around the world. He is not indifferent and callous to the cries of help and desperation that so many lift up saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, deliver us. He hears every cry and he sees every tear. And if you read through Revelation, his promise is this. I will wipe every tear from your eye. God will right every wrong. Vindication belongs to the Lord. And John the apostle tells us his name is faithful. His name is true. Some of you here, you're like, why should I believe in this Jesus? Why should I put my faith, my trust, my family in the, eye, in the hands of Jesus? Because Jesus is not a liar. Jesus made good on every promise and every prophecy in the Old Testament. That's why he came riding in on a donkey, because the Old Testament prophets declared it. And he made good on the word of God. And three times he looked at his disciples and he says, I will be betrayed. I will die and I will rise again in three days. He, spe he specified the number. And what happened? He was betrayed. He died on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again. Jesus is no liar. He is faithful and true. And the question is this, will you and I believe him? 
believe him in his return? Will you believe him in what he promises and what he will accomplish as he brings the wrath and fury of God upon those who have been rebellious, wicked, and disobedient? Brothers and sisters, vindication belongs to the Lord. Will you trust him? So what do we do? First, we do lift our eyes to the heavens. First, we are called to consider Jesus and put our hope and our trust in him. First, we are called to offer our allegiance to Christ our King who is gentle, who is mighty, who is meek, who is righteous, and who is able to save. Brothers and sisters, on this day, if you do not know Jesus, if you died on this day and you do not know where you would be, whether it is in heaven or in hell, the call of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel is this, repent and believe. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ who has come to save you. The second exhortation is this. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. If you follow me on social media, which I think like, 10 of you do. Um, uh, I was reflecting uh, upon uh, just a couple verses uh, last night, and uh, it comes from Galatians 6. Galatians 6, and it's written by the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul had an amazing life. Do you know at Paul's conversion, right, he was Saul, and he was a Pharisee, and he was persecuting the church. Jesus meets him on this road to Damascus. The scales fall from his eyes, and, and he's just He's utterly transformed by the presence and the grace of Jesus. You know what God says about Paul? He says, I will show him what it means to suffer for my name. Imagine that. You accept, your, you accept Jesus today. You're like, I, I believe in Jesus. Your life is transformed. And the first thing God says to you is, you are going to be an example of suffering for the name of Jesus. You're like, can I return this? Is there like a 90-day return policy? Can we trade out? Paul was a man well acquainted with suffering, with persecution and sorrow. And this is what he writes to the beloved Galatians who are experiencing persecution for the sake of the gospel as well. In Galatians 6, verses 9 to 10, this is what he writes to them. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give up on Christ who promises to return. Don't give up on praying for those who are hurting, those who are marginalized. Don't give up on, on serving and being a witness for Jesus Christ. There might be times you, you feel like you are fight, fighting a wildfire with a water pistol. But the word of God tells us today, do not grow weary of doing good. Would you fight the good fight of faith? And would you seize every opportunity that God affords you to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ? Friends, you and I, as we try to counsel those who are grieving, help those who are hurting, as we try to demonstrate generosity, to offer funds and resources to, to families who have lost so much, let's never, let's never identify ourselves as the solution. 
Let's never think that our cause or our resources are really going to save. Let's always point to Jesus Christ and believe that he is able, he is mighty to save. So in light of all that is going on in this world, whether it's wildfires raging through various cities in our country, whether it's in the, in the midst of so many painful tragedies and massacres afflicting our citizens, let's not give up. Let's not lose hope. And let's always point people to the everlasting hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live, to walk among us, to experience all of the pain, all of the rejection and persecution that he did not deserve, to die in our place on that cross all so that he could give himself as a ransom for many. We thank you for your great love. And we thank you, Jesus, that, that you didn't just die on the cross and ascend to the heavens never to come back, but Jesus, that you give us this promise that you will return riding on a great white horse with all of the hosts and the armies of heaven to establish your perfect, flourishing, beautiful kingdom that you will offer us the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Help us again to be renewed in your promise that you will not forsake, that you will not abandon us. Would you help us as a church, would you help us as a people to be anchored to that hope and to lead others into that good news? We thank you, Jesus. You truly are the hope of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.